O happy land of careless laughter, Of heath-clad mountains and valleys green, Where fairies dance on the moonbeam's rafter, O inner showin', the land of Pachin. Thomas Nesbitt, 1891 Well, thank you for downloading this episode of the Morted Muse podcast. If you want to contact me, you can do, as always. The email address is jim at themaltedmuse.com or you can contact me through the website www.themaltedmuse.com where there's more information and some links and, of course, the contact form. Now, today's episode is going to start off, I will confess, on a rather self-indulgent tack because there's a few people that I actually want to say thank you to and perhaps the one I want to say thank you to most at the moment is a bloke called Dr Steve Murray and this is really self-indulgent because Dr Steve Murray has been my GP, my doctor for quite some time and I've recently heard that he's leaving the practice and Possibly, I don't know, possibly even going into retirement. I hope not, because I'm sure he's got so much more to offer. But there's one, some little thing I want to say about him, and it goes like this. To find a good doctor, a good GP in this country, England, actually is not that hard to do, because there's loads of them about. To find a great GP, that takes a bit more. That's not quite so easy to do. And Dr. Steve Murray, if you're listening to this, you've been more than a great GP. You see, Dr. Murray has been one of those people who you have no doubt whatsoever about the foundation of his knowledge, but he's got one of those lovely manners that just relaxes you, opens you up, allows you to talk about anything at all, and you walk away knowing that you've been listened to and been listened to with compassion. Um, he's one in a million this bloke an actual absolute gem who has seen me through some very difficult times and some very good times as well and I'm sad to see you go and if you do listen to this Steve with all my best wishes for you to the future I actually dedicate this episode to you now that's just one person I want to mention today another person i feel i ought to mention is a norwegian man by the name of bjorn frengstad and i'm sure i pronounced that wrong and i need to thank this man as well i need to thank him for a couple of things one is at the moment my daughter's been staying with him in norway Uh, he has been a support for her there helped her sort a few things out and his family has shown her a good time and just been wonderful towards her and I thank you for that because when you have a daughter that's in a foreign land you can't be there to support and help them yourself it's nice to know there's that safety net so thank you very much for that Bjorn but Bjorn is also somebody else who I need to thank for some other reason as well and regular listeners will know that within these episodes there's a piece of music that often appears in these podcasts that makes the link from one part to another it's the introductory music it's the transition music and often if i have music at the end it's that piece of music as well and that piece of music was both written and is played by bjorn um, when he was in a folk shock duo called the sedatives along with a good friend of mine dave banks so thank you for that bjorn not only for looking after my daughter, but giving us this wonderful little bit of music that I've used so frequently. Now, two more people I want to say thank you to. One is David Borthwick of Burn Stewart, and the other one is Stuart Lang from Douglas Lang. Now, I've had two long conversations with these two people i'm not going to say what it's about because i hope to be able to talk about this in later episodes 
but they have both given me a lot of their time as well as given me some really sound advice it's it's means so much when you hear a friendly welcoming voice that is supportive it's um, understanding it gives you time and actually opens your eyes to so much more knowledge about whiskey i've often heard that the whiskey industry is a very friendly supportive environment and these two people have illustrated that to me this last week so thank you both and i'd also like to say thank you to the young chap that i met in a shop recently who when i was briefly talking about whiskey very confidently said to me oh i don't drink single malts i only like double malts just gave me that feeling that there's so much more work still to do anyway in today's episode i want to talk about not so much about whiskey but about pachin and there's a reason for that and i will talk about that in just a moment but first there's a couple of books that I'd want to tell you about. So there's two books I want to tell you about. Both of these, at some point or another, by some people, have been known as Bibles. Now the first one of these is the book called The Fine Art of Mixing Drinks by David A. Embry. Now, I must be honest, I'm not too sure when this first came out. The edition I'm referring to is a 1963 edition, and it was printed by Faber and Faber Limited. It had 362 pages, that includes an index and some line illustrations. Now, there were editions before that, but this one's special to me because this is the one that I had. The 1963 edition, it's not an original first edition, but was a book that was instrumental in the influence in my life. It's strange how a book bought so long ago could end up being so important. A book that cost me about two pounds or something like that. This is a book that I bought around the time that I'd got a job running the public bar of a four-star hotel in Southampton called the Polygon, a hotel that I believe has since gone and a job that I was in no way qualified to do. In fact, to be totally honest, I lied during the interview to get it. I had an early interest in drink. And at that time, the interest was mainly wine. And I'd had a part-time job as a wine waiter and thought I could develop this and push it further. But in reality, I had very little knowledge. And then I got this job. What was I going to do? Well, the answer was was to buy a book and to study. And this was the book I bought, The Fine Art of Mixing Drinks. And was soon to be nicknamed the Bible by a friend of mine called Andy and myself as we experimented with the recipes in there and tried to work our way through them. I studied and I studied it until it became a part of me. As years went by, my career moved away from drink into very different areas. But as I moved, the book moved with me. It became a social thing when I had parties, out would come the book. And eventually that book was passed on to my oldest son, who was at that point developing an interest in mixing drinks and is slowly growing an interest now in whiskey. So why is this book so good? Well, simply put, it's because it is a classic. It is one of those simple books that just covers all the basics you want to know, and more than the basics. It describes the history of the subject and has a wide range of definitions as it introduces all the elements of the vast array of available drinks. 
be that gin, rum, vodka, whiskey, or even just orange juice. It is not just a group of recipes, although there is no shortage of them, and not just cocktails either, as it tells you about the history of the cocktail, the basic recipe of the cocktail, the definition of the cocktail. But it includes punches, it includes mulled wines, it includes really old favourites like wassailing cups and many more, including non-alcoholic mixes. This book will tell you what to do, when to do it, how to do it and in what to do it into. It will tell you how to use a cocktail shaker and when not to shake but to stir. It looks at usage and abusage as well. And as well as that, it goes into to tradition and drink etiquette. Yeah, to be honest, this is a book that has aged. There's other books out there that has information, that has recipes, and it's far more contemporary and up to the moment. But yet this is a timeless classic and one that I've learnt a lot from since that time when I bought it, back around 1977, around that time. Now, I don't have the book anymore. I've passed it on, as I said, I've passed it on to my oldest son, who I went to see this weekend, and there it was on the bookshelf. And I must be honest, I couldn't resist taking that book out flicking through the pages, looking at some of those familiar words, some of which I can still remember, seeing in fact even some of the stains on those pages from spillages when mixing drinks. What a wonderful classic book that has been part of my, my own development, The Fine Art of Mixing Drinks by David A. Embry. Now, the other book that I want to talk about is more of a modern Bible and is known as such. It's Jim Murray's Whiskey Bible, the 2011 edition, written, of course, by Jim Murray, published by Dram Good Books, 384 pages. Now, the annual release of this book has become, to some, like the first cuckoo of spring an annual event bringing reassurance and joy. This year, the cover of the book has changed. It's its eighth year, eighth edition, and now they've changed the cover of the book. But don't worry, if you like the old design, you can visit their website and buy an alternative cover that matches the old style. Now, for those of you who don't know, this book has become a standard reference of tasting notes for a vast number of whiskies. In fact, this year has tasting notes for over 1,000 new entries, which brings it up to over 4,500 whiskies in this book. All of this in a small pocket-sized publication. So it's mobile. And that is my main problem with it. Now, confession time. I'm not as young as I used to be. Quite some time ago now, I got to the point that I needed to start using reading glasses. To get so much information into one small publication has meant that the font size is small, very small and tight. To be honest, I can struggle with the glasses on and frequently muddle the lines up because they're so close. If the light is poor, then just forget it. And as for being able to write my own notes next to it, no chance. For the most part, however, that doesn't bother me. If I'm looking up a particular whiskey, then the way the book is laid out means that I can find that quickly and I only need to read for a short burst at a time to find the thing that I want to know about that whiskey. 
The other thing is, as much as I admire Jim Murray, it is his tasting notes and views, and I don't actually need them to work out if I like a whiskey or not. I can do that for myself. In fact, I would argue the case for not taking the tasting notes as gospel, if you'll pardon the pun, but instead make your own mind up about what whiskies you like and what you think of them. What is annoying is that Jim Murray has a really good writing style. He is confident, interesting and opinionated. He is in a great position to reflect on the trends and changes within the industry, not to mention being able to highlight a number of other issues. And he does this well. In fact, he does this very well. If the industry has a problem, he will say it, and he will say it in clear terms. He also has a slight romantic side, which shows in the way that he can walk down memory lane or frame a point that he's making within a story that personalises it and helps make sense of it all. For me, it is these sections at the front of the book the review of the year, Jim's thoughts and comments that make this book so interesting. The tasting notes, they're interesting and they're useful to a degree, but it is the other things that, for me, make it worth the read. If only I could do so without getting a migraine from eye strain. So much value, so much work, and yet so much lost to font size. I only hope that there is a large print version for people with greater visual challenges than I have. One option that may help would be to only have the tasting notes in such a small font. These bits are only read in small amounts anyway. So why not have all that brilliant stuff at the beginning in a larger font and then the tasting notes in the smaller front. Another option would be to release this in a digital media form so that a simple zoom function could remove the problem, be that as an app, a download, or for a Kindle type device. What's my overall opinion? Okay, it's a good book. Buy it. Read the front parts for they are worth the read. The tasting notes, they'll keep those for reference sake. But please make up your own minds about what you like. And as always, do not take too much notice of ratings. I do not think that even the great Jim Murray would really taste 4,500 different whiskies and be able to mark all of them out of a hundred, including half points, and not get them all right, even if that was possible. I think of the tasting notes as a rough suggestion of what I might expect, or be that a good suggestion by somebody is in a good position to do so. The rating scales, the tasting notes, yeah, they're good, they're interesting, but Take them for what they are and have fun with them. The good stuff, the stuff that I really like, that really gets my blood pulsing, is the stuff at the beginning of the book. And I'd love to see some more of that as well. Which, of course, you do in some of the other things that Jim Murray writes. There is great joy in old books. Sometimes they seem to sail through time carrying their cargo of knowledge, opinions and history. Their voyage is not always happy and sometimes they get lost at sea. Occasionally, however, they find a metaphorical port and their cargo is hungrily offloaded. 
When my father-in-law died, some of his books came to my home. Many were books of Irish history, and especially the history of his home area of Inner Showen. One of these books is Carn Donna by Mara Harkin and Sheila McCarroll. Amongst the list of acknowledgements is one Bert McKee, my father-in-law's brother. On looking at this book, I was interested to see a small section on illicit distillation and another section on the alcohol factory. Now this should not be a surprise, as the area had a strong reputation for very high quality pachin. It was also one of the five sites where the government built Siamisi Tioranta alcohol factories. These were built in 1936 and used mainly molasses and potatoes to make industrial alcohol and vodka. One of the other sites is the current location of the Cooley Distillery. The one at Condonna became a superglue factory. Now, Pachin is an interesting drink. It's a very mixed drink. Originally it is made from barley, and originally it seemed to be very much like whiskey itself. Um, but over a period of time, and without regulation, it expanded and other things are being used. Potatoes, sugar, molasses, all sorts of things. Not saying that I've ever tasted it, of course. <clears throat> when did Pachin making first start? Well, Pachin making really first started on Boxing Day 1661. And the reason for that was that because on Christmas Day, Christmas Day for heaven's sake, the English-based government slapped a tax of four pence a gallon on all whiskey made. And that had an incredible effect on the whiskey, Irish whiskey industry, along with all the other pressures it was under. And the following day, on the Boxing Day, a lot of the Irish went out and started making their own stuff illegally. And in doing so, started this dynamic between the excise men, the gauges, and the people of the country themselves, who were making it, well, let's be romantic for a moment. Let's say they were making it to mark out their independence as a rebellious stand against the English-based government. And, you know, I don't think that's far off the truth. Let's be a little less romantic. Let's say they were making it for their own pleasure, so that they could celebrate, they could sing, they could rejoice, they could party. And maybe there's a little bit of that in it as well. But the harsh reality is a lot of people were making it to survive, much in the same way that the Scots were doing as well, when they also were being hampered so strongly by English-based government and other factors that are going on. People living a meagre existence, struggling to make ends meet, and often failing to do so. If anybody is in the Carndonna area, in that area of Inner Showing, if you can bear to peel your eyes away from the glorious views and landscapes that are there, or the company of the wonderful people who live there, just for a moment, go and visit some other wonderful people who run a place called the Famine Village on Doe Isle. Now, it's only a small little venture there, but well worth a visit. It gives a little bit of insight into how conditions were. Now what I want to do now is read a few things from these books. But before I do, I want to read something from another book. And this is um, a more modern book. This is Classic Irish Whiskey by Jim Murray. And I'm not going to read a lot from this book because I actually don't feel that I should do that. He's the person who's gone into the effort of writing it and you know, all the credits and everything should go to him but I'm going to break my little rule here for a little bit and read something from it because he has in here um, excerpts from a couple of letters that was written by Samuel Lumsden an officer of the army writing back to his family in England and what he thought about how whiskey was being made and 
the Irish people and how they link together. Um, and the reason I want to read this is because it will illustrate and support some of the other things I want to read from this book, Khan Donna. So in Jim Murray's book, he writes that Sam, Samuel Lumsden, writing to his family back in England on the 15th of April, 1816, and he writes, In a detachment with another officer and 32 men, 20 miles from Derry, except potatoes and eggs, we cannot get an article of substance nearer than headquarters. Out every night searching for private stills and generally not in vain. Illicit distillation appears their only means of subsistence, and yet the fines arising from it have actually ruined them. They are now desperate. If another law of felony is imposed, illicit distillation will be found insufficient to stop, for transportation cannot deter men who are conscious their situation may be better, but cannot be worse. The voice of kindness is so great a stranger to their ear that the first word of it awakens their utmost gratitude. And then on August the 6th, 1816, he continues to write, I entered this country with a disposition to esteem the inhabitants, but this atrocious murder of Norman Butler of Grouse Hall, Carndonna, has jaundiced my mind against the bastardy of Scotch craft and Irish ferocity. His murder was marked with particular ferocity. After the two balls had emptied him, the fellow rushed forward and put his bayonet through his thigh, entering four inches into the ground. In the struggle the bayonet broke and left him pinioned to the ground. His death was occasioned by his exertion to put down illicit distillation. The murderer is known and protected by the inhabitants, and though the rewards for his detection are large, yet nothing will induce the infamous crew to give him up. I was all last night searching for him. A few days since, I went out on revenue duty with a Mr. Callaghan, Surveyor of excise, he and the gauger galloped after a man who was running off with a still. They left my view twenty minutes later. I found Mr. Callaghan, to all appearances dead, his skull fractured with stones and entirely unable to speak or move. This country is ruined. It is the station of poverty. All who can are flying from the approaching ruin and hope in America to find hope and plenty. Now, Jim Murray goes on and gives some more examples and elaborates a bit more, but as I said earlier on, this is Jim Murray's book. So if you want to read those, this is a book I would strongly recommend. Um, it's reviewed on my website, a Classic Irish Whiskey by Jim Murray. Now then, a book, this book, Khan Donna, that I'm about to read from, I shall read a bit more from than I have the Jim Murray book. I don't think there's much chance of, of people being able to get hold of a copy of this book. If you do get chance, or oh, do do get hold, it's full of illustrations, very old. Uh, it's written in 1984. Um, and it's a, it's a lovely book to look through, it really is, especially if you have an interest in the area as I do. But anyway, unfortunately, it's th what I'm going to read from tends to be newspaper cuttings, and sadly the book doesn't say where all the cuttings come from. Um, so there's a little bit of vagueness here. The first cutting reads... If the rebellion of 1798 passed in a show and by, there was nevertheless trouble in store, and in no mean measure. In 1785 an attempt had been made to add to the Irish revenues by suppressing all small whisky stills, and licensing those of the largest description only. The only result was that a quiet 
peaceful and reasonably law-abiding people was suddenly transformed into a community of consistent and incurable lawbreakers. There was no cessation of distillation, but what was before a legal and usual means of livelihood became all of a sudden an offence against the law, and the attempts to bring the offenders to justice were so harsh that for years the ordinary life of the entire peninsula was disorganised. Landlords and tenants were set one against another, and the government probably spent more money in the vain endeavour to enforce their law than they would have received as revenue from several large distilleries. In 1814 the government passed an act for the suppression of illicit distillation, and the measures taken for the carrying out of this act hit Inner Sharon very hard. In a pamphlet entitled Oppressions and Cruelties of the Irish Revenue Officers, written by the Reverend Edward Chichester in 1818, is found the following passage referring to the action taken by the local landlords. One gentleman, Mr Robert Young of Caldaff, became responsible for £2,000 as the only means of sparing himself the distress of seeing the destruction of his tenants. The benevolence, however, of these gentlemen proved fruitless, for the excisemen soon demanded new contributions on new pretenses, insomuch that it would have been impossible to have satisfied the impending requisitions by means of the produce of the soil, unless it had been composed of gold dust. Mr. Young even took his sons from the university, that they might suppress illicit distillation on his estate, and they have been compelled, almost ever since that time, to endure fatigues, cold and watching for the purpose of controlling their tenantry and to employ, as their assistants, a large corps of yeomanry at their own expense. Yet notwithstanding all these exertions, and their seizure of nearly one hundred private stills, the illicit trade exists on that estate, and affords a practical commentary on my assertion respecting the impossibility of restraining clandestine distillers by compelling landlords to declare war against their tenants. The Board of Excise, however, made no remission of the fines levied on Mr Young's property, notwithstanding his endeavours to serve them, and they enforced with rigour the payment of the £2,000 for which he was under an engagement. The resentment of the people against the revenue officers was so great that outrages of every description occurred in the barony, even including murder. On the 2nd of July 1816, Mr Norton Butler was shot and afterwards bayoneted in his own garden at Grouse Hall and died some hours later. Mactachair in Innishowen gives a highly melodramatic account of the wanderings of McGuinness, one of the murderers, who was finally betrayed by one of his own companions, George Balfour, assisted by Mr Young and the Coldaff Yeomanry, and brought to justice. An account of his trial is given in the Derry Journal sometime in 1817. Corroboration of the above story is found in a letter given below, now, that letter is very short, and it's Dublin Castle, September the 1st, 1816. Dear Sir, as the exertions which have been made by yourself and other members of your family in cooperating with the arrest of a notorious offender of the name of Daniel McGuinness have been made known to the Lord Lieutenant, he is desirous of returning his acknowledgments for them, and has commanded me to assure you that the splendid assistance given by your sons to Lieutenant Plunkett on the occasion of the apprehension of McGuinness is considered by His Excellency very creditable to them. I have the honour to be, sir, 
your most obedient servant, Robert Peel. And that letter was to Robert Young Esquire of Kildarf House. The writer of the above letter, Robert Peel, was afterwards Sir Robert Peel of constabulary fame. And there's a little excerpt here as well from the Derry Journal, Monday the 19th and Wednesday the 21st of October, 1931. Pachin case. At, Con- at Candon, a district court, on Tuesday, Mr. M. D. White, solicitor, pleading guilty on behalf of a man from the Upper Isles, who was charged with having been at a place where illegal distillation was going on, said defendant owned a small mountain farm and had a family of nine, ranging from sixteen and a half years to thirteen months. The district justice said it was a hard case, but Pachin had caused ruin in the Inner Sharon Peninsula. He imposed a sentence of two months' imprisonment with hard labour. Of course, there are stories of humour as well amongst all of this. One being Glenagannon, or the Glen Beyond. The history of Glenagannon is embodied in the annals of Somerset House, and well known as the most notorious region in Inishowen for this species of manufacture. Pat the tailor was working at a customer's, and as it was that time of evening, when it was neither light nor dark, he was stepping about, as was his wont, for the half-hour which preceded the lighting of his candle. He perceived the movement of the policeman, and his quick brain instantly fixed on a mode of saving the smugglers. Pat's plan was to simulate madness, and to make a furious dash in the direction of the men with a view of being apprehended and escorted to his home, which would change their course from his comrades. He seized a scissors and a long strip of brown paper he had stitched together, which he used as a measuring tape, and without hat or coat, sailed out at his utmost speed in the direction of the mountain. The sight of so old a personage, running towards them, bareheaded and without a coat, brandishing in one hand a pair of scissors and in the other a coil of brown paper, astonished the policemen to a high degree. They slackened their pace to try if they could understand what it meant. They recognised Pat. For fear of war, man, will you be after telling us where you are bound, said one. Pat shook, and staring at them for about a quarter of a minute, said nothing. Off he was to start again, when he was laid hold of by the policeman with an iron grasp. Way laying on his man on business. I must be off at once. I'm late. I'm late, growled Pat, while he pointed his scissors at the moon. Pat, ashore, said the sweet-tongued veteran man, for such they were. Let us know what's the matter with you, and you may depend on our assistance, for I am the most honoured tradesman on earth. Drap your horse, for I'll tell you I'm going to the top of Krukuski, to catch the moon and to take the governor's measure for a pair of breeches which I am to make to order. Do you understand that, you niggers? This was enough. Pat was utterly demented, so they kindly took him in charge and with much apparent reluctance on his part escorted him home. By this manoeuvre the smugglers, with their goods and chattels, escaped. After Glenagannon, the most celebrated spot for smuggling in Inishowen is the Medians in Iskaheen. Now then, I must apologise. I'm not going to try to put on any Irish accents, and I do apologise if I get place names or people names mispronounced. Andrew Gallagher told Patrick Canny a story about the men who were stilling and had to go home because of flooding. When they came back, everything was as they left it. The fairies kept watch over the still at night. In Glenagannon, William Farron and Andrew Gallagher of Craggan were out stilling. They heard great singing and laughing, so they left a bottle with some whiskey for the fairies. 
illicit distillation and all other cases under the excise law excite generally the greatest interest of any of these petty sessions districts. Detections are few in proportion to the amount of illicit distillation carried out in Innishowen. By the Illicit Distillation Act, persons having in possession or on their premises malt, spirits, low wines, wort, wash, still, stillhead, worm, cooler, or other vessel used in illicit distillation, or any person found at the place where illicit distillation is being carried on, or any person conveying vessels for illicit distillation or spirits, etc., in possession, or any person hindering any excise officer in searching for seizing and removing stills etc any person borrowing or concealing or permitting or to be to be concealed any still etc penalty 100 pounds or 12 months imprisonment on persons guilty of these offenses that's jn thompson 1884 100 pounds or 12 months imprisonment Okay, I want to read you something else now. Again, from the the book from Carn Donner. And this is written by someone called John Barleycorn. I know John Barleycorn very well. Visitors to Ireland, having read travel books before they left home, always admire our little thatched roof cottages and the glories of our countryside. Most of them never fail to ask about Pachine. In days gone by, it was plentiful enough, but despite the comparative scarcity of duty-paid whisky, there is not much, if any, Pachine being made amidst the mountains and cliffs of Innishowen. For this you may praise the police, certainly, but do not forget the ban placed on Pachine by the clergy. Remember also that the manufacture requires sugar or treacle, both difficult to obtain during our recent times of scarcity, and that the stiller could not obtain renewals for his plant. Naturally, the making of pachin has always been done in secret. Recipes have been handed down from father to son, and the hiding places of the stills have been cunningly concealed. The work of manufacture was frequently carried on by night, and only after careful watches had been posted. When, however, the civic guards, having received information, or else their suspicions aroused by a freshly trodden path or a wisp of smoke in the mountains, searched all sorts of hidden nooks and out-of-the-way caves, they were sometimes rewarded with a find. The site was usually near a stream or water to be used for cooling purposes. Here were all the tools of the trade, the still, the kiln, and the outfit of worm-like pipes. These had been made and set up in secret by a local handyman, or, more probably, by a travelling tinker who had assembled them on the site and left everything in working order for the proprietors. Mountain Dew may sound romantic, but its manufacture is hard realism. It is a job for experienced and skilful hands. Barley is selected and steeped according to the month of the year and the condition of the weather. When the grain has been fermented properly, it is dried in a pure copper kiln over a peat fire. The nature of the peat determines the punch in the patine. The spirits, after distillation, should be allowed to mature from five to fifteen years. This is a rule, however, that is more honoured in the breach than in the observance, and too often the product is used in the fresh state. There are people who will tell you that Pachin, if good, tastes even better than duty-paid whisky. In appearance it is clear liquid, not unlike water. The clearer it is, the better it is. A man asking for it will very likely refer to it as the wee stuff, or the clear stuff, or a drop of the cratcher. In the distribution and sale of Pachin, the art of camouflage was practised to high perfection. 
the commonest method by which it was conveyed, was hidden in a cartload of turf, by which means gallons of the precious liquid could safely be transported. A story is told that on one occasion the police heard that a certain turf cart was about to enter a town with a cask of pachin concealed beneath the peats. But the pachin seller also had his spies. He was soon forewarned and transferred his cask to the cart of a friendly vegetable man who got past the police without a word, whereas the innocent turf cart was seized and unloaded. When its load had been dumped out and poked through and through, the turf man was wildly indignant. He protested that it was now too late in the day to find customers for his turf. He created such a scene, in fact, that the police officer bought the load for twice its market value. But the police, on their part, have not been wanting in camouflage and enterprise. Sometimes they dress themselves as women, country women in shawls, or lady tourists in fashionable ensemblers, and so avoided the suspicion of the bachine maker's scouts until they were near enough to the stills to make a seizure. Although patine making is rapidly becoming a lost art, the name and fame of Pachin are known the world over. Poets and writers have given publicity to it, and Irish playwrights allude to it. Songs about it live on. If the Pachin don't kill me, I'll live till I die. The main point of which is that the habitual Pachin drinker does not live long. In conclusion, here is the traditional toast of the Pachin drinker, containing surely many elements of human felicity. May you have health and long life, with a good wife of your own choice, and your land without rent, and a death in Ireland. OK, now I'm going to finish this section by reading a poem although I'm sure it'd be better if it's set to music, but don't worry, I'm not going to sing, called The Jolly Smuggler. Oh, I am a jolly smuggler, I keep the best of stuff, and I do not care for civic guards and carrow or muff, Carndonna or Caldaff, Malin or Moville, I'm at their defiance because they don't know where I still. My yeast I get in Derry and bring it by their nose. They think I am afraid of them with their buttons on their clothes. But for them I do not give a jot. It's me they will not get. I always make my whiskey, let the night be dry or wet. The neighbours and informers come often to the hill. It seems to puzzle all of them, for they don't know where I still. The neighbours cannot tell on me as they oft-time did before when they caught my Uncle Billy on the road from Leonamore. When my brothers and my comrades were fighting in the war, I was sitting in the heather with my arms around my jar. Oh, I love to sit beside my still. It fills my heart with joy, for I cannot do without it since I was a little boy. Oh, when I am dying and in my dying bed, I hope you won't forget to stick a bottle at my head. And when I am departed, be sure, make no mistake, don't put me in a coffin, just stick me in a flake. And when I go to heaven, there's a certain thing I'll do. I'll get great with St. Peter and teach him how to brew. And all of you that go below will have a better bunk if yours get a drop of the real old stuff and keep the devil drunk. Well, does pachin making still take place in Ireland? Let's go back to Jim Murray's book, Classic Irish Whiskey, and on page 228, that um, question comes up. It isn't whiskey anymore, no, not so much because it's never mature for the three years required to make it so, but because these days it's nearly impossible to find an illicit distiller who sticks exclusively to grain in the making of his prized colourless fluid. It was not hard for me to track down a latter-day pachine maker when I was last in Ireland. 
I will read no more. As I said before, that Jim, that's Jim Murray's book. But the thing is, he's suggesting there very strongly that it's still going on. Does pachin making still go on in the inner showing area? Well, you know, I'm sure it does. It must do. I can remember reading in the local paper of inner showing how there'd been a court case not that long ago um, where somebody was where somebody had been caught making pachin. And there you've got independent evidence that's quite safe for me to talk about. Well, as I said at the beginning of this episode, I'll say it again. Thank you for downloading it. Thank you for listening to it. Um, It has been a very self-indulgent episode. Thanking people like Dr. Steve Murray and... Stuart Lang and David Borthwick and Bjorn Fringstad talking about books that are from my past and also talking about books that actually predate me, that go beyond my lifespan and into my father-in-law's lifespan and his family. Um, Yes, it has been self-indulgent, but I like to think that you'll have found it interesting. And even if you don't find it interesting, I also like to think that I am playing my own little part here in trying to preserve some of this history, some of this knowledge, which um, I find interesting, I find fascinating. I do hope you have done as well. By the time I sit down to make the next episode, Whiskey Live in London will have come and sadly will have gone. If anybody sees me down there, do come up and say hello. Um, It's going to be a good event, I'm sure of that. It's going to be a busy event, I'm sure of that as well. And who knows, it may be one of those life-changing events, just as the book that I talked about at the beginning of this episode, The Fine Art of Mixing Drinks, how that had an effect on my life. Not quite the effect I thought it was going to have. And taking time as well. But it it was one of the things that was like a little seed in my life that slowly nurtured, slowly germinated until it grew and grew until it became the passion that I've got now. And who knows, at Whiskey Live, another one of those seeds may well be planted. Not just for me, but for you as well. And if you're not going, then I hope you all get to go to a similar event to uh, to that soon. Getting together with people to talk about whiskey and to taste whiskey together is a lovely experience. Anyway, I've rambled enough. Thank you for listening. And I hope you will listen again to future episodes and perhaps listen to some of the back catalogue if you haven't done so already. Thank you very much. And until next time, goodbye. Thank you.